Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 19, verse 13 through 16. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Please be seated. Would you open God's book, please, to Revelation chapter 7? And if you want an outline of the sermon, that's where you may find it. Revelation, the 7th chapter. We're going to start in verse 9 in just a couple of minutes. Some passages, to me... Uh, feel a little bit or make me feel a little bit like Moses when he came to that burning bush and I feel like I should take my shoes off. Revelation chapter 7 is one of those. I've preached from Revelation 7 in my life many times and so far as I know, every time I did was to emphasize how many people are going to be in heaven, which which is important because when you and I as humans think about going to heaven, maybe maybe we struggle with confidence in going. But when you read Revelation chapter 7 and you see the number of people who are going to be there, it's not going to be a small number, it's going to be a tremendously large number. And we'll read that in just a second. There's a blessing in my life to being part of a preaching family. My grandfather was a preacher and my father and my son and now my father and grandfather are gone, but, but I, all through these years, it's been very common for one preacher to call another and say, you know what, I'm thinking about this passage. You, you want to preach on this with me? And what that, and Caleb did that the other day, he phoned me and he said, what if, what if, I'm going to preach a sermon on Revelation 7 and you want to do this with me? And I said, oh yes. And now I can't get the passage off of my mind. I'm not, I'm not going to preach about this today in order to emphasize the number of people in heaven. Now, you're, you're going to see that in a second when we read it. I want to emphasize something else. And I expect that this metaphor, and you know that Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 says that the book is signified. That is that it's written with a lot of signs in it, a lot of symbolism in it. When you grasp this symbol after we talk about it this morning... I expect it is the probably the most powerful metaphor in the New Testament for obeying the gospel and being baptized into Christ. It's probably the most powerful one. And, and yet we don't talk about it very much. And I, I hope that it will influence your thinking like it has mine. We had a great week this past week. Family Bible Week was terrific. I came over here late at night sometimes, a couple of times in the week, we left and it was pretty late, but we'd come back and we'd got, forgotten something to pick it up and there would be people here down into the evening or night working and it, it was just terrific and so many kids, so many young people. 
I went uh, Friday and Saturday and preached a few times in Paducah in a lectureship. But I can tell you all week long what I've been doing is holding Revelation 7 in my mind. I hope it will have that effect on you. Sometimes people have the idea, I think, maybe not spoken, but perhaps the idea that after I'm baptized, when I become a Christian, that I progressively, as I grow, become more and more saved. That at the first, I'm maybe a little saved or Maybe not, I don't know. I, I think that we may minimize somebody who first becomes a Christian. And Michael is here today, and we're just so thankful to have him. And he just obeyed the gospel. He was baptized on Wednesday night. And when Michael was baptized, and I don't mean to embarrass him, but, I just, but you're just so handy. When he, when he obeyed the gospel, he, he was as saved, is as saved this morning as anybody in this room. What will progressively happen and hopefully is happening in all of our lives, is that we grow as Christians. We get stronger and we get closer and we learn more. We get get more knowledge and garner that. And and as we do that, we become closer and closer to God. And that's wonderful. But the fact is, I was just as saved the day I came up out of the water as I will ever be. And the fact is that the Bible also teaches that I live in a saved condition. So long as I walk in the light, uh, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continually cleanses. The Greek word means continually cleanses us of our sins. Now, that doesn't mean that I can live like the world. I can't. But so long as I walk in the light, that is to say that every day I get up and what I want to do is follow the New Testament. I want to live like Jesus. I want to be what Jesus wants me to be. And I'm not, we've got passages in the New Testament that teach what, God does with the sins of Christians. And if we say, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, if we say, Christians, that we don't have sin sometimes, we deceive ourselves, the truth's not in us. But I can tell you this, a person who is baptized is saved. And then if he walks in the light, so long as he will live faithfully, he lives in a saved condition. Now, the emphasis of Revelation 7 that I want to point out is about robes. It's about white robes. Go with me to Revelation 7. Let's start in verse 9. Look at these people who are Christians, and they have just entered into heaven, at least least a number of these. They've just entered into heaven. After these things I looked, this is John writing, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They will neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living waters, living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, here are four facts I want you to know about this multitude of people, this multitude of the blessed. Number one, this multitude was before the throne of God. Now, that's what it's described here. That's what it says in verse 9. They stood before the throne of God. Now, that's very interesting to me. I, I, I can go back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament in Israel and see that tent in the, in my imagination. I can see the tent tabernacle. And you know that there were such strong specific rules about how you could approach that and how you could, what, what you must do in the priests. And in the back of that thing, there was the most holy place. And that's the dwelling place of God. And a high priest could only enter that once a year to make atonement for the people. But when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and ascended back to the Father, of course, I know that that, that veil of the temple was pulled down, or tabernacle, later the temple, and that when I pray today, I can pray directly to the Father. I, I don't have to have the high priest, my human high priest, to intercede for me in that most holy place. Jesus is my high priest, and I've got access. And so when I pray, I'm praying before the throne of God and Jesus, I do it in Jesus' name, and he is my intercessor. Hold your, hold your hat now. These people who are in heaven are, are not divided by anything between them and God. They're, they're before the throne of God. Number two, they're immeasurably happy. Now, when you get down to verse 9, it says they had palm branches in their hands. That doesn't mean much to you and me. But, but when you go to the feast days of the Israelites and you come to the Feast of the Tabernacles, you find the most joyful, most joyful feast of all of them. You read Leviticus chapter 23 and you'll come that, that you have the day, the annual day of atonement that precedes this, that happens before it, that after the day of atonement, they have the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a feast of rest. It's, it's in the fall of the year. It's when the harvest is in, the fruits of the trees and the vines are in, and it's a time just of rest. And it's associated with these palm branches. What about these people? What about the ones, this innumerable number of people that are in heaven? They are happy. Number three, it's made of those who come out of the great tribulation. Drop down to 14. That's what it says. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes. Now, that's that's very interesting. And I've spent a good bit of time thinking about this. In fact, I've been communicating with with Bruce about this. Bruce is our our, uh, local revelation expert and taught great classes for quite a while recently. And I I wanted to talk to him about this subject because the question to me is, was this a specific tribulation or is it general, applicable to all people who are Christians? And we, we were even talking about it this morning before worship began. It is true that you have some occurrences that are specifically described as the tribulation. For example, in Matthew chapter 24, having reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, you have that term, the great tribulation. I'm convinced that what you have in Revelation 7 here is not about any specific tribulation. The Greek word for tribulation 
means affliction. One of the definitions is it means pressed together. It means great pressure. And it is applicable to all people who live a Christian life. Go to Acts 14.22. The Bible says that this is something that happens and that we must all go through tribulation. We must all, you live a Christian life and that's what's going to happen. You'll face the tribulation. So I believe that the answer here, what's going on here is that these people of all nations, of all tribes, of all languages are before the throne of God. But what is characteristic about every single one of them is that as Christians, they went through some hard days. Now living a Christian life is not hard every day. I'm so thankful for that. At least not for us. There's some days though that are going to be excruciatingly difficult and, and, I tell you, you talk to somebody who's a young Christian and it would be a, a wrong thing to say to him or to her, you, you become a Christian and life is going to be easy. That wouldn't be true. And what's, what this is about is to say that the opposite is true. These people in heaven before the throne of God, this great multitude of people that nobody can number, like the sand of the sea, I'm telling you that these people are the people who have come out of great tribulation. Now here's number four, and it's back to verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are people whose robes are white. It's kind of funny, really. When it comes right down to it, the most important thing you'll ever do in your life is wash your clothes. It's symbolic, of course. These are, these are spirit beings. We're talking about heaven, and they're not physical, moral people like you and me right now. These are people who have gone on to heaven. They're in God's dwelling place, and they're characterized by the wearing of white robes. Now, here's point number two. So what do the robes mean? I would give you five things. Five things in this this white robe deal, that this symbol, five important things. The first one is they're pure. It represents purity. Now, they're in a heavenly place. Remember Ephesians 5 and verse 27, he's talking about the church and that he wanted to present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and, I love this, and without blemish. How is that possible? The only way is forgiveness. The only way is that with his blood he would wash us clean. But when we're clean, we're really clean. And when you talk about the white robes, it's the same idea. It's that these people wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and so you've got purity. Remember transfiguration in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9? And the Bible talks about Peter, James, and John. They see Jesus there, and he was changed or transfigured before them. And the Bible says that he was, his clothing was so white, whiter than any, any launderer could make them, any fuller could make them, that, that he was glistering. I don't know that word very much. We don't use that, but it's with a G. It was glistering. It was so bright that it was hard to see, hard to look at. His garments were like that. Purity. It emphasized purity. With these people who are saved in heaven in Revelation 7, their souls, their characters have been washed. It's the emphasis of Isaiah 1 and verse 18. You remember that. Come, you let, it, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be as crimson, they shall be as wool. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. They shall walk with me in white because they're worthy. All right. 
What does it mean? Number one, the white robes emphasize purity. Now, here's the second one. It emphasizes fitness. Now, you're talking about people who are in the holiness of God. They're in the presence of the throne of God. Now, when you look back in your Old Testament to Exodus chapter 28, you see those priests, and they had priestly garb, and they would wear fine linen, and fine linen was white. It was because of what their responsibility was. It was what they were about and the the honor of it to be in the presence of God, to be offering these sacrifices and the duties of the priests. They wore white. Look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. And has made us kings. This is you and me. We're priests. We're all priests. He's made us to be kings and priests to, to his God, the Father and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Or First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, you're a chosen generation, Christians. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. There, there you go. What do the, the white robes mean? They mean fitness. I love Psalm 96 and verse 9. It says, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The New American Standard says, In the holy attire. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping at the throne of God in heaven, and they're wearing holy attire. Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And that's where these... This multitude of people are. Number three, it represents victory. Victory. Do you take, you take the generals coming back home after their, their last conquest, and it was not at all uncommon for them to wear white garments. If they didn't, they'd ride white horses. It just emphasized that they were the winners. They had conquered. They were over. God chose white to symbolize victory. Now here's Revelation chapter 19. Beginning in verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed them on white horses. It's all symbolic, of course. It's symbolic of victory. And when you get to heaven, looks you're not going to fight these battles anymore. You're not, you're not going to fight the battle of temptation anymore. You'll be done with that. You won't fight the battles with disease anymore. You're all done with that. You're going to be wearing white. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath. Next slide. Of Almighty God, he has, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Revelation 21, 11, or 20 verse 11 says that, God's throne is uh, white. His throne is white. It represents victory. Now, here's the number four. It represents rest. Now, if you if you have a job that involves getting dirty, I I usually sit uh, in the office and work, and I I don't come to the office every day in old clothes. I usually dress in um, in cleaner clothes. But a lot of jobs, that's not true. And I tell you, when Glenn gets outside and works, when I'm cutting, cutting firewood or I'm, um, I'm working on something that's greasy, I, it is very common for me to get very dirty. I'm an overall man. I just must tell you that I like overalls. But my overalls, and I've got more than one pair, are usually in the pile to get washed because 
I get pretty dirty. I've known people, men who were auto mechanics. They get real dirty. They get finished at the end of the day, and what they were were grimy. They were grimy. But when they came home, they'd clean up. They'd put on clean clothes. And it represented the fact that all that work for today is done. I'm, I'm ready to rest now. Revelation 14 and verse 13. I want to say that that white robe represents rest. I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. No more grime. No, you take, you think about the apostle Paul in second Corinthians 11 and all the suffering he went through. What do you reckon is on his garments? What about that coat that he wanted so bad? I expect the bride of the Mediterranean was on that coat. I expect some blood was on that coat from his suffering. What do you got on your garments? Well, this life is, is sometimes going to be very hard, but not in heaven. And that white robe represents rest. Now, here's the fifth thing. It represents joy. It, it represents joy. Remember Luke 15 and that prodigal came home and what happened then? Likewise, there's joy in the presence of heaven when a sinner repents. And when you get to heaven, I can assure you what you're going to have is joy. Now go to Revelation chapter 19 with me. I want to begin in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. All right. The meaning of the white robes. Purity. Fitness, victory, rest, joy. Now here's the third point, the final point. And this is just so important. It's so important. How'd the robes get white? Now, I want to tell you as I begin this point that it is certainly true that you and I will wear white robes because of the grace of our God. And the fact is that nobody in this room would have any hope of heaven without his grace. It is true that we will have those white robes because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And without that, had he succumbed to the temptation of the devil in Matthew chapter 4, we wouldn't have any hope. Had, had he given in and run from the cross instead of enduring the cross, were it not for his righteousness, none of us would have any hope. But that's not what this is talking about. And when you talk in Revelation 7 about the, the white robes, it, the white robe isn't the righteousness of Christ. It's not. Because these robes were washed. You know why they were washed? It's because they were dirty. It's because they were stained already, and that's how come they had to be washed. This isn't the righteousness of Christ, because there wouldn't be any washing necessary for that. And it's important for you to see that they were not always white. Now, Acts 22 and verse 16 says, and now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Can you, can you just remember this with me? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What I want you to get is that the ones, now this is important. This is probably the most important point of this sermon. Grasp this. The ones who washed the robes to make them white with the blood of Jesus Christ was the people themselves. 14. 
I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They washed their own robes. Huge. It's huge. And when did that happen? Here's 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Seeing you purified your souls in obeying the spirit, the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. When did they purify their souls? And the answer is when they obeyed. That's when they did it. And again, Acts chapter 22 and 16. And what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. What's that? Gotta clean the robes. You're not going to do it with soap and water. You can't do that. There, we, we sing the song sometimes. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What washes away my sin is the blood of Jesus. But when does that happen? And it's not, it's not when, it's not Calvinistic. Calvin had the idea of irresistible grace. And the idea was that if God just randomly picked you to be one of the saved, you couldn't stop it. You were going to be saved regardless of any decision of your own. That's not what the Bible teaches. In Revelation 7, the ones who washed the robes were the people who wore the robes. Revelation 1.5 says, Unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That tells us that Jesus' blood is what washes away the sins. You can't, I'm not, I'm not diminishing his role in this at all. You, it wouldn't work without his role. I'm just saying that what John envisions, sees in, in Revelation 7, is that the ones who wash the robes were the ones who wear them. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration. What is that? It's baptism. It's baptism. And baptism, according to the New Testament, is when I contact that blood. And how do you get your robe white? And the answer is that you wash your robe with the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's got to be your decision. It always must be the decision of the person who needs the forgiveness. Romans 6 and 3. Don't you know that as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Now I want to ask you a question. How do you get to the blood? How do you get to the death? you got to get to the cross. And you say, I don't see how that's possible. I mean, it's 2,000 years ago. And how can I appropriate the blood of that cross to my own sins? And the answer is you'll be baptized. The answer is that you repent of your sins and confess his name and then you're immersed in water to obey him who said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. It is that time when I'll, I appropriate that blood. And that's why Revelation, um, Romans 3 says, I'm, I'm bab- Revelation, Romans 6 verse 3 says, I'm baptized into his death. Why are you waiting, he says. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Wait a minute. That emphasis is on the person. The person is the one who's washing away his sins. It's all by grace. I got that. It's all by by the vicarious death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on that. I got all that. I know that. I'm just saying that these passages emphasize our role in this. And without our role being carried out, you say, well, we're not saved by works. Well, I declare to you that obedience is a kind of work. It's not a work of merit. It's nothing about earning it. Of course, we know that. But I can assure you it's necessary. I can assure you that if your robe is going to be white on that day, it will be because you obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ and you were baptized to have your sins washed away in his blood. 
Verse 14 says, these are the people, this massive crowd in heaven with their palm leaves standing before the throne of God are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They, they live Christian lives. I don't know how long, different times. They face some hard days. And they've washed, they have washed, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I, I, I feel a little embarrassed that the preaching that I've typically done from Revelation chapter 7 has been about, don't, don't be thinking, I would warn, don't you be thinking, and this is still valid, of course, don't you be thinking that there's not going to be very many in heaven. Don't be thinking that, that oh, there's so, it's so vast, and how can it be that, that if there's very few, and then we, it's, there's a ratio, and Jesus talked about that there's a broad way and a narrow way, and more people are going to go the broad way to destruction than, than go the narrow way to eternal life. And perhaps we would think from that that maybe there's just going to be a few. And some would reference that in First Peter chapter 3 about the flood, that eight souls were saved by water, and how will it be in the end, and maybe I won't make it. And then I would offer Revelation chapter 7, and hold on a minute, hold on. Revelation 7 says... That, it's an innumerable number. It, no man can number this. Out of all tribes and nations and, and tongues and people are going to be there. And it will be because they obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ and everybody, everyone in that list, list is amenable to the same law of Christ. And people all over the world have obeyed the gospel of Jesus. All over the world. And when they did and came up out of that water, can you hear me? Can you hear this old preacher now? Their robes had been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they were white. The robes were white. And as long as they walked in Christ's light, they weren't always going to get, get it right, and sometimes they were going to sin. The Bible teaches that. But I declare to you, as long as, as they were walking in the light and striving every day to please King Jesus. And as they grew as Christians, and they grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3 and 18, the Bible says that, that they were always saved. They lived saved, and their robes were white. Now, the only way to end this sermon is to, is to ask you this personal question, but it is the question. Have you washed your robes? Have you washed your robes? Don't you be thinking that you'll, you'll die one day and who knows when that will be, but don't be thinking that, that I can, that I can approach the throne of God with my robes still dirty. Oh, he's done so much so that I could wash them. The very idea that I would refuse that doesn't make any sense at all to me. Are your, are your robes washed? Have you obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or somebody in this room who hasn't, and you've, you've studied this with me today, and you're ready. I want to obey the gospel. I want my robes to be white. We'll be so happy to baptize you into Christ. If you need the prayers of the Christians, let's make, the, let's make whatever it is right. Let's go forward. I'm so glad you're here today. If there's someone who wants to obey the gospel, subject to this invitation, you come now as we stand and sing. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. Brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.